What a joy it is uh, for us to be back with you, and uh, you have such a huge space in our hearts, and uh, Lily's sitting right over there uh, with us this morning, and, and uh, we've just been so for- looking forward to being back among this family of people that we love. As I look out over here this morning, I just remember so many connections, and uh, great to be here. We are now in Monterey, California, enjoying our life there immensely. Uh, we are, get outdoors all the time, so we get to walk along the coast or ride a bike along the coast on, on a regular basis, so please, please feel sorry for us. Um, well, I had a seniors ministry in a previous church that I served uh, who said that the challenge of the retirement years is to balance freedom with significance. And I thought, wow, that is such a good summary of what this stage of life is all about. Uh, you want the freedom of a little more open schedule, not have to show up at, the, at work at the same time, you know, all the time and have the structure that's there, uh, be able to enjoy the things that you want to incorporate in your life that you haven't had a chance to do before that. But you also want to have significance. And significance, certainly for a Christian, means you want to serve the Lord all the way to the end, be involved in kingdom work right up to the last breath that you have. And so uh, we've had a lot of significance uh, in these last 18 months uh, since we've left here. Uh, a lot of international travel, primarily for ministry purposes. We've been, uh, let's see if I can remember all the places, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Nepal, India, Canada, Mexico, are just uh, some of the places that we have we've traveled internationally, and I've had some other certainly opportunities uh, domestically uh, as well to do some teaching and continue on with the discipleship teaching that God has called me to do. Uh, We are finding ourselves nicely rooted in our new community in Monterey, Uh, have joined a church that we feel very good about. We have time now for developing relationships. Uh, It's just so much fun to be able to linger with people where you felt like maybe a little bit more pressured uh, during the workaday world uh, that we were a part of. But the, the big surprise for me uh, during this period of time was a ministry that I had not on my radar screen at all. In fact, I never thought I would even be good at it, and that is prison ministry. And uh, because of a connection through a chaplain in Texas who got me down to a Texas prison there because they were using some of my materials, uh, I made the transition to say, well, I don't need to go to Texas to go to prison. <laughs> there actually are a few in California. And uh, one about 50-minute drive from my house. And so I went through the process to get approved to go into that prison. And every Wednesday morning now, I, I go out and meet with about 30 guys who are, uh, some of those guys are lifers, uh, but are going through a discipleship essentials process with them. And uh, it's been such an enriching thing uh, for my life to be engaged with them. I never thought I'd even be good at talking uh, to prisoners, uh, but the Lord has opened that up. Lily is finding her way as well, certainly in our community. She's involved in the Tuesday morning women's Bible study, kind of same like she was, was here helping lead, lead that. We're involved together in a uh, some couple of small groups uh, related to our church. <clears throat> and then if you were to visit us in Monterey and maybe go to the world-famous Monterey Aquarium, uh, she is going through the process of becoming a docent there, so you might see her smiling face, uh, and you can ask her about all things aquatic. Uh, at that point in time, because she will certainly bone up on that and uh, become good at that. And then, of course, the last thing I need to say is you have time for grandkids, right? So we just came back from a family reunion in Sun River, Oregon, had our grandkids with us for a week along with our daughter and son-in-law. Uh, Claire is six, Dylan is four, 
and uh, he's out there pedaling away on his little two-wheeler, and that's, it's great fun to, to be a part of that. So that's all to say life is uh, very full and enriching at this point in time, and we couldn't have imagined uh, anything much better than what's taking place at this point. <clears throat> well, let me transition to uh, what I've come to talk to you about this morning, what the Lord has put on my heart. Many of you know that before I preach a message, I always have my wife read it. I always ask for her feedback. Sometimes I welcome it, sometimes I don't. <laughs> but she had a one-word description for this morning's message. And the, re- the word was, it's dense. <laughs> now, I'll let you figure out what that means. All that means is, this is a warning here, sit up straight, you're going to have to follow me. It's, you know, somebody caught me before worship this morning and said, I have one word for you. Uh, what I call you is the teacher. Well, I'm doing a lot of teaching this morning, so stay with me. Uh, if you stay with me, there's a payoff, trust me, along, along the way here. Well, as uh, you have already heard um, from Dan, you know, obviously my, my focus is around discipleship, and I continue to stay there. And I continue to think about the implications of a statement that John Ortberg made. He said, no one can be a disciple of Jesus because you think you should. You actually have to want it. And I think Ortberg raises a question, and that is, what moves us beyond the sense of should or obligation to follow Jesus to to the want to? What creates that wind behind our back so that we're not just trudging up a hill, but we are actually following Jesus because there's that desire to do that? And uh, one of the places we find that desire is one of the characteristics of a disciple that Jesus talks about in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And we know that passage as the Great Commission because in the Great Commission, he gives us the marching orders for the church. He says there is a singular purpose that we are to have, and that is what we are to be about is to make disciples, to make apprentices, to make students, to make those who are followers of Jesus. But what we oftentimes don't see in that text is that Jesus gives us a working profile of what a disciple actually is. What's a disciple look like? And he gives it to us through three participles that he uses. Now, you remember what a participle is? Can you go back to your high school English class and run through your mind, okay, what's that part of speech? (laughs) Well, it's uh, a verbal adjective that takes on the force of the main verb. So make disciples is the main verb, and then there are three participles that you can recognize by the I-N-G ending, and you'll see them on the screen here. So we read in this Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20 text, go, or as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So a disciple is first one who goes, who moves out, who heads towards the lost world because God has sent us with his compassion to do so. The third characteristic of a disciple is one who is being taught to obey all that Jesus has commanded. In other words, we're willing to align our lives with Jesus' intent for us. But it's the second quality that I want to focus in on this morning, and that is one who's being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've mused over that particular phrase, that a disciple is one who is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thinking, why does... Jesus include baptism as so central to discipleship. Or as one commentator has said, what does getting wet have to do with discipleship? 
And uh, so we think of baptism as something that happens, you know, by the baptismal font as a ceremony in, in, in the church, a kind of a rite of passage that we go through. But we know, even looking biblically, that it has a much deeper meaning than that. So here's, here's four meanings that baptism has that we practice or take from Scripture. Uh, baptism is an act of initiation into the life of the Christian community. First characteristic. Secondly, it's an act of public declaration where we're saying, I'm giving my life over to the ownership of Jesus. Uh, thirdly, uh, it comes with water, so it signifies a cleansing from our, the guilt of our sin. And then fourthly, baptism uh, represented by Paul in Romans 6 as dying with Christ and rising with him. So we identify ourselves with Jesus. That old life is gone. The new life has come. So all those meanings are, are significant. But I think Jesus in this text goes beyond that to the most richest of meanings. And this is what I want to spell out to you today. What does it mean to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because I think what Jesus is saying here is that in this succinct statement, I have come to restore for you all that you lost in the fall. That broken relationship that came about because we rebelled against his authority and distrusted his goodness, I have come to restore that broken relationship, that original intent that I had for you in your life. What if I reworded that second characteristic of a disciple this way? As you are going, make disciples of all nations, immersing them into the life of the first eternal community who is made up of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Immersing them into the life of the first eternal community, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, I think what Jesus lays out for us here is the ultimate destination of redemption, that we are to be called up into the life of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'll explain that. But to understand this, we have to go back to the beginning. So follow me here. <laughs> Follow this line of thinking. Back to the beginning is Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis chapter 1 is written to answer a question, why did God create in the first place? And we know that Genesis 1 begins with that well-known statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in the next 25 verses, the six days of creation are laid out in kind of poetic form. There's a repeated formula for the first six days of creation. And you'll see the formula on the screen. The day begins with there was evening and there was morning. And then God says, let there be, let there be light, let there be vegetation, etc." And then he responds by that, from that by saying, it is so, it was so. And then God steps back and pronounces the benediction and it was good. And then finally concludes each one of those six days, there was evening and there was morning. So we see that poetic formula throughout the first six days until we come to the second half of the sixth day. And it's as if all of this was simply warm-up to this magnificent thing that God is going to do. Uh, the pinnacle is coming because the creation formula abruptly changes at that particular point from let there be and there was to a very personal statement, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I've done all of this, God is saying, because I'm bringing human beings on the stage. And these human beings will bear my image. 
different from everything of the rest of creation that I have made. So what is the image of God in human beings? What is it that we reflect about God? Now, theologians have been speculating about this for eons. I call it the full employment plan for theologians. You know, come up with your idea of what this happens to be. And let me show you some of the suggestions that have been made. First of all, rationality. You know, we think complex thoughts more than the rest of creation. Morality. We have the ability to choose between right and wrong. Freedom of choice. We have the ability to choose between alternatives. Self-consciousness or self-awareness, only human beings can contemplate the meaning of their own existence. Creativity and imagination. We have the ability to bring ideas and images into existence. Well, all these are good speculations as to what it means to be created in the image of likeness of God. But I think ultimately all of them kind of miss the core point that this text is talking about. Because you might have noticed a clue in our text to what the image of God in man is. And it's the fact that God is talked about in the plural here in this text. Did you notice that? Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. What is this us and our stuff? Why does the singular God talk about himself in the plural? What's that all about? Well, if you read the light of the New Testament back into the Old Testament, we would say, oh, of course, this is an early reference to God as Trinity. At the center of the universe is one God who is three persons. So what does this tell us about what it means for humans to be created in the image and likeness of God? It means this, that from all eternity, God existed as a loving community. God has always been community always been in relationship within himself. And so he creates us out of love and for love. And all the qualities I just mentioned that you saw on the screen there really go to one thing, the capacity to have relationship. It's about relationship. So let's think about this. We affirm with the Apostle John that the core characteristic of of God is, is love, right? But if God were from all of eternity a solitary being, a singular being, how could he be a God of love? C.S. Lewis captures this as he usually does. He says, love is something one person has for another. If God were a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Get it? From all of eternity, God is community is in relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baxter Kruger puts it like this. From all eternity, God is not alone and solitary, but lives as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in rich and glorious fellowship of utter oneness. The Trinitarian life is a great dance of unchained communion and intimacy, fired by passionate, self-giving, other-centered love and mutual delight. If God were alone when he created us, then he created to fill some deficit, some emptiness in his life because he needed something to love. It'd be kind of like a a young teenage gal wanting to have a baby so that she had a baby to love and to bring about fullness in her life. If God needed us, then we are a means to his end, not an end in ourselves. 
But the Apostle Paul says so clearly in the book of Acts that God is not a being who has a deficit, who has a hole in his own heart. He creates out of his fullness. This is the way he, he states it to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Our God did not create to fill an emptiness in his being. He created out of the fullness of love so that we could experience that love and be drawn in to that love. Or I love the way the German mystic Meister Eckert put it. He says that uh, God created out of the laughter of the Trinity. Isn't that wonderful? Out of the fullness of the Trinity. Okay, dense, right? <laughs> so let me uh, provide a little interlude of uh, maybe an image here that helps us capture this for a moment. My wife and I were married in 1969. It was the countercultural revolution that was going on in our culture at that time, Vietnam War, racial race relations, anti-poverty campaign uh, that was taking place. And uh, for those of us flower children back in those days, there was a very anti-child attitude. You didn't want to have children because children would tie you down and we were to be free. And so we were kind of caught up in that spirit uh, during, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. And we carried on our own anti-child policy. <laughs> About five years into married life, we've got to get those questions. When are you going to have kids, right? And so we had came back with these kind of high-minded, altruistic-sounding responses. Well, why would you want to bring another mouth to feed into this overcrowded planet? Or why would I want to bring a child into this world into the specter of nuclear holocaust, right? Now, those were all just kind of excuses <laughs> to fend off people's inquiries. But five years into our married life, we were starting to change our own attitudes about having children. But it was one of those things, and married couples will relate to this, you begin to change an attitude that you think may be contrary to the attitude that your spouse has. And so you were afraid to bring it up, because what if they don't agree with you? You want to have children, but they don't, or something like that. But uh, the Lord intervened, and we suspected that Lily was pregnant. All the signs were there. And uh, so she went off to the doctor's office to have her pregnancy test. There was no kit that you could get at the local drugstore uh, at that time. And then we got the phone call from the doctor's office. No, negative, you're not pregnant. And it was then that we finally admitted to each other our disappointment, that we had both changed our minds about our desire to have children. And what surprised us was even with the thought, even with the idea of having a child, we had already formed a love for this child of promise. We wanted a product of our together love on whom to bestow love. And that served for me as an analogy of, that God has built into us to understand the nature of who God is out of his love to bestow love to draw us into that. Now, I do need to parenthetically add that the doctors were wrong. We do have a 37-year-old daughter and two grandchildren to show for it. So. And so when Jesus says that we are to be baptized, immersed into the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
He's bringing us right back to that moment of creation and telling us why God created it in the first place and that this is the ultimate destination to restore what he originally intended for us. Well, of course, Genesis 3 intrudes, doesn't it? We rebel against the goodness of God. We just trust the authority of God. We go our own direction. We have the ultimate people of ingratitude. He gives us all, and we throw it away. But God is not thwarted because his original intent was to create us out of love and for love, and so he's going to pursue us in love, right? And so the next thing he does is he forms a people for himself. We call them the Hebrew people, the people of Israel. He says, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. You are my treasured possession. I'm going to put my holy character in your life. You are to be the sounding board to the nations to tell people of the fame of God. Of course, the people of Israel don't quite match up. But it's through them that God provides the ultimate gift, the gift of his son. And it's through Jesus that we are introduced to the interior life of the Trinity. We get a glimpse into the kind of relationship that the Father and the Son especially have with each other, that kind of life that we are going to be drawn into. You know, in the Old Testament, God is called Father 15 times, never addressed in prayer as Father. In the Gospels, God is called Father 179 times, 100 times in the Gospel of of John alone. And how does Jesus tell us to pray? Our Father, right? And so it is the mission of Jesus to introduce us to the Father, to adopt us into his family, to invite us into the same love relationship that he experiences even right now with his Father. And again, C.S. Lewis says it succinctly, the Son of God became a man to enable men and women to become the children of God. That was his mission. Well, I want to open a, a few windows here so that you can see the intimate relationship between the Son and the Father, or the Father and the Son. And the first window I want to open up is Jesus presenting himself to John the Baptist for baptism at the beginning of his ministry. And you might re- recall that actually the Trinity is present in that moment. Because as Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, what happens? There is a dove that comes down, alighting on Jesus, representing the Holy Spirit, the one who empowers him for his ministry. But it's the second thing that happens that I want us to look at this morning. We get to eavesdrop on a most intimate moment. You realize that? We get to listen in on the communication between the Father and the Son. Now, Mark's account and Matthew's account are a little bit different from each other. In Mark's account, Jesus is spoken to by the Father as in personal address. You are my Son, the Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. It's as if the Father is saying, what I want you to know at the beginning of your ministry above everything else is the place that you have in my heart. You're going to have a tough road ahead, son. I know that. I know where it's heading, but I want you to never doubt the affection that I have for you. So that personal word of address. And then in Matthew's account, there's a shift. 
It moves from a personal word of address, you are, to this is my son, the beloved in whom I am well pleased. Who's the father speaking to here? He's speaking to to the crowds that have gathered. Here's a proud papa speaking. His buttons are bursting. I want you all to know that this is my child. This is the one who has accompanied me from all of eternity. Is now there among you in time. Now, I think every parent in the room can identify with this. Have you not had moments when your child has been honored, made that shot in the basketball game, that hit in the baseball game, the award at the awards ceremony, when your child's name has been called out. What's your feeling at that moment? Come on, be honest. You want to stand up and say what? That's my kid. That kid came from me. Isn't that what the father's feeling at this moment? We had that moment in, on Labor Day weekend 2002. Our daughter was going to be presented her hood as a medical doctor graduating from Brown University. And I, I told my daughter ahead of time, when that moment comes when her name is going to be called, that I'm going to embarrass her and myself. And when her name is called and that hood is placed over her shoulders, I'm going to stand up and yell, way to go, Amy! which I did. Paid a lot of money for that moment. (laughs) Well, this is the voice of the Father ringing throughout the universe. This is my son. You are my beloved, marked and chosen by my love, the pride of my life. Now listen carefully to that. Because the same thing that the Father spoke to the Son is what he speaks to you. And to me, because we get included in that. Let me see if I can show you that as we, as we go on. A couple more windows here to open up to see the intimacy of relationship between the Father and the Son. Garden is Gethsemane. Jesus enters that garden in wrenching torment. Luke tells us that with the cross just before him, that Jesus is actually sweating drops of blood falls down on his knees, puts Peter, James, and John in earshot, and then he cries out, what? Abba, Abba, Daddy, Papa, Father, let this cup pass from me. I think he goes right back to the moment of his launching in ministry when the Father says, you are my son. And he's speaking these intimate words. Nobody has ever addressed God like that on such intimate personal terms, has that access to the Father like Jesus has access to the Father. And then one more window here to open up. Let's turn to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, his last moment with his disciples before they head to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is very aware that the cross is before him, that his work is about to come to completion. And so he says in John 17, 4 and 5, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Did you catch that second line? Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had when? Before the world began. What is Jesus conscious of at this moment? Of his eternal relationship with the Father 
that there was that time before creation, that he was in face-to-face relationship with his father. Now he's in a human body, sojourning here on earth for a time. Now he's ready to go back to the Father. There's nostalgia in this text. There's homesickness here. I can't wait to get back to where I have been. He's saying, wow. And then he goes on to conclude in the latter part of this chapter that he prays for our oneness. And that oneness is based upon, in verse 21, just as you are in me and I am in you that they may be one, that they may be woven together into the fabric of love that we, Father and Son, share together. Include them in that love, please, Father. I am them and you and me, he says. And then he makes this amazing concluding statement in verse 26. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may be in them. I visualize Jesus saying, let's open up the circle. Let's open up the circle and include us in. Get involved in the family that's there. Early church fathers called this a parakaresis, um, the circle dance. The chorus is, has to do with a dance in the Greek society at festive occasions. It was done in a circle. You had the word peri. It intensifies the circle dance of love. This Trinitarian community moves in a constant circle of intimacy, equality, unity, but never losing their individuality. And he's saying to us, welcome. Join the circle. Come on into our life. Enjoy the revelry that we have with each other. That's what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Wow. Again, let me see if I can capture this in an analogy, if I can. It wasn't uh, included in the bulletin this morning, but there's a picnic this afternoon at uh, 3 o'clock in Jory Park that CCOB is putting on. Don't show up for that, by the way. Um, But suppose you were planning to go to a picnic this afternoon, and you had a busy afternoon, and you hadn't given a whole lot of thought as to what you were going to bring to that picnic to provide for your own sustenance. And you swing by your house a little before three, you open up the refrigerator, say, oh, okay, what can I put together? What can I throw together at this point? And you see only a, just kind of a little stale piece of bologna there in your refrigerator, and the, the mustard jar is now crusted over, and so you crank it open, and there's just a little bit left, and you slap that on the bologna, and there's a couple of stale pieces of white bread. You grab your brown paper bag, you stuck it in, and then off to you go. And uh, you sit down at a picnic table, and lo and behold, you are joined by a family. And the mother in that family has been cooking for days. And she pulls out of her picnic basket uh, this gorgeous, plump, golden brown fried chicken. Your eyes are getting as big as saucers at this point. Baked beans that have simmered for days, potato salad to die for, and uh, then the piece de resistance is two large chocolate cream pies. You look down at your brown paper bag. You know what's in it. And then you hear these words. Why don't we just put it all together, they say. And you object and say, no, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't even think of it. And they respond, oh, come on. There's plenty of chicken and pie and everything else. And we just love bologna sandwiches. (laughs) 
Let, let's put it all together. You show up there kind of like an orphan. And then you get included in the family. And you eat like a prince, a princess, right? That's what we're talking about. Well, let me move to the kind of so what portion of this message. What's the implications here? The implications is that for those of us who are connected to Christ and then brought into the community of faith called the Trinity, this is the foundation for the church, we've got a new identity. And we have a new identity, but most of us don't believe it. Let, let me see if I can demonstrate that to you. Let me just ask you if you'll close your eyes for a moment, if you could. Just close your eyes and visualize, if you will, standing in front of a full-length mirror. You see yourself standing in front of that full-length mirror, and you hear these words coming out of your mouth. You say, I am good. Say it again. I am good. You kind of choke it out a third time. I am good. And my guess is for most of us, it's very hard to say that. Because we know ourselves. We know our foibles. We know the long-standing patterns that we've had in our life. And we don't see ourselves as those who have been included with our new identity. Of course, I'm not good in myself. I'm good because of what Christ has done for me. You know, any of you who know me know that this has been my long-standing challenge in my own understanding of the Christian life. This is one of the things I had to break through. Am I a beloved child of God? I had a hard time getting that from my head to my heart. I needed help to get to that point. But the truth of the Trinitarian embrace is that we are included in the family of God, that we obtain the same position that the Father invites Jesus into, and we are included in that position. And so he can say to us, just as the Father said to Jesus, you are my daughter, you are my son, marked and chosen by my life, my love, the pride of my life. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that same theme. He says, and when they have the Spirit of Jesus in us, we pray the same kind of prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father. We have that kind of identity. He says, in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought you out of adoption, brought about your adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the same cry that was on the lips of Jesus. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Do you believe that about who you are? One more quote from C.S. Lewis this morning. No, actually not one more. One, two more quotes from C.S. Lewis this morning. C.S. Lewis uh, spoke about the wonder of the Father's delight in us this way. He said, I read on a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think about God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness to be loved by God, not merely pitied, to be delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son, it seems impossible, a weight of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. 
a weight of glory our thoughts can hardly sustain. To be delighted in by God, to be included and caught up in the revelry of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's so hard to sustain that, isn't it? To continue to believe that. It's kind of like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's lit up for a moment, and then that light fades. It's like those moments we have in our life where we stand before a sunrise or a sunset, and we're in awe in that moment, and we're filled with the, the presence of God, and then it fades. Or we have that old faithful eruption of thanksgiving in our life, and we're overtaken by that, and then we return to the day-to-day life. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, we cannot mingle with the splendors we see. We cannot fully enter in. In my retirement years, uh, I've been trying to smell the roses a little bit more. We actually have roses in our backyard. That's one of them. And I find myself staring at the beauty of that rose and just caught up in it. And I want to enter into it. I want to mix myself with that beauty. But I can't get inside of it. I can't let it go around me. Again, as C.S. Lewis says, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. That's what we want. And that being called into the life of the Trinity is, is kind of a down payment, a, a sense, an inkling of what is to come. And not only do we have a new identity, we have in this understanding of our life in the Trinity, our hope, our anticipation, that we will be caught up and enveloped by that life of the Trinity. No, now we can't mingle with the splendors we see, but as, again, C.S. Lewis says, the New Testament is rustling with all the evidence that one day we will enter in. So to know that we are the delight of the Father's heart, that we are taken into the circle dance of his Trinitarian love, and this love will one day flow through us in an unimpeded fashion. That's what it means to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you as the one we are called to address, knowing that you are in relationship with your Son and the Spirit in a circle dance of love, in a revelry of love, and you have opened up that circle and you said, come join the dance. Come dance with us. Come join the joy that we share with each other. Welcome into our family. Lord, make that as real as it can possibly be for us in this life, even as we wait that transparency that will come in the promise to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.